Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Blue Jays Nation Radio with Cam Lewis and Tyler Uremchuk, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Episode 163 of Blue Jays Nation Radio. Brandon Douglas once again sitting in for Tyler Ramchuk as he is away. Joined as always by Cam Lewis. Coomsey, if you had a phrase to fill in the end of this sentence, this Blue Jays offense is... Boring, hard to watch, frustrating. There's a million different ways that you could, a million different adjectives you can use to describe like the slog that it is more often than not to watch this team try and score runs. It, it can be an infuriating process. Yeah, the best, um, the best phrase I could come up to fill it out with was like almost impotent. Like <laughs> they can, they can make stuff happen. They can do it. But when the time comes to actually seal the deal, they just don't have the juice. They don't have the juice. Maybe involuntarily celibate might also be a good uh, way to describe this Jays offense because man, it is tough to watch sometimes. Good Lord. We came into that wondering why the San Diego Padres have the record that they do like a few games under 500, nowhere close to the national league West, pretty far out of the NL wild card race. And I have no better understanding after those three games as to why the Padres are as bad as they are. They kind of have, and the, the, the comparison is not really perfect. I thought about this a few times over the series this week. They kind of remind me of the 2015 Jays in a way. Like the, we all remember the 2015 Jays after the trade deadline when they pretty much went undefeated the rest of the way with Tulo and David Price and everybody. But before that, the 2015 Jays were this wildly frustrating top heavy team with good players who could, you know, they could, they could, they could beat anybody at a, at a given time. Like if they go head to head and they could, they could stack up with anyone, but then they would lose two out of three to whoever. And it was just an infuriating thing. It seems like the Padres are like that. They have that, they have all these good pitchers. They send Blake Snell and you Darvish and Joe Musgrove out at you. And then they've got the top of that order. Tatis, Soto, Soto walks in every at bat. It looks like it's impossible to strike them out. Machado and Bogarts aren't doing as well as they should be doing, but they're still good players. It's, it's my, numbing that this team has the record that they do yeah and like you get given this i mean they took advantage of the opportunity winning game three yeah kind of buried the lead here jays lose two of three to the padres but to finish off the homestand here coming out of the all-star break um and we talked about it last show how they were coming up against the padres three best starters like it was not a great matchup that way but after the sweep of the diamondbacks we were everything that they did well against the d-backs whether it be the bullpen's dominance um, starting pitching was mostly solid and, and the bats had all of a sudden come in alive for what did we say? 36 hits in those three games. 
That was all pretty much the opposite here. Maybe with the exception of some of the starting pitching, uh, will that notwithstanding, but the, the Blake Snell thing, that was the only, like against their best pitcher. And he just walks every third guy that comes to the plate and you still don't score any runs. Well, one run until the seventh inning. So it was, like I said, just re retreading it frustrating to watch, but we can get right into our uh, three ups, three downs, starting of course with the downs since it was a series loss. And I think if we go back to game one, it's it's tough to start anywhere with the, except the Alec Manoa situation. But don't worry, it's not a step backward. Yeah, that's what John Schneider said after the game. Alec Manoa, he got everybody excited before the All-Star break when he came up and did really well against the Detroit Tigers toss perhaps his best start of the season. The the most, you know, most exciting thing about that start, the thing that really gave you some optimism was that he didn't walk anyone and he struck a bunch of guys out. And then this start here, he has, you know, a week and a half, 10 days, 10 or 11 days off between those starts, some time to rest, some time to think, comes out against the Padres. And this is a better team than the Tigers. They have, it's kind of funny to look at them. They have sort of similar records, but they're not even close in terms of ability. Manoa goes out against the Padres and he only manages to go three innings, allows three hits, five walks, strikes out zero and allows four earned runs. It was the same Manoa that we had seen earlier in the season. The guy that everyone's got a full count. He can't strike anybody out in the first inning. He has to throw 41 pitches to get through that. And all we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. It's our, one of our, our next point is that there was a bit of an umpire show going on behind the plate. So I don't think that helped Alec Manoa at all, but he didn't look the same as he did against Detroit. There wasn't the, you know, the slider wasn't moving. It wasn't fooling anybody. And the command just wasn't there. It didn't really look like he knew where the ball was going at all. So Schneider says after the game, and I mean, I don't, I don't blame him for saying this because he's not going to come out and be like, ah, you know what? Like it was really disappointing to see how Alec pitched out there. He looked a lot better the first time and now he's bad again. Like, no, he's not going to say that. It doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, he's going to say what he's going to say. He's going to say something positive so that, you know, <laughs> it doesn't further deteriorate what's going on in Alec Manoa's head, the negativity around that start. But I, I have a hard time looking at that and wondering what the positive is. Five five walks, zero strikeouts, that's not at all what you want to see. No, and, and once again, also unlike his starting against the Tigers, he didn't get any any run support either, but once again, we will get more to that in a moment. I think we can start with the, the like you said, the ump show that did take place um, in this Manoa start in game one. And we actually saw the umpires make some uh, waves several different times in this series. In game three, the home plate umpire took a foul tip right off the forehead. And I couldn't believe how well he shook it off until our good friends in the broadcast let us know that it was, in fact, the only Canadian umpire that exists in the uh, major leagues. And uh, so that made it less surprising when he just kind of shook it off and, and carried on. Um, but I even thought in that third game, the strike zone was a little bit, you know, maybe more forgiving. Whereas in game one, it seemed like it was, it was a little bit all over the place. The, the strike zone in game one was a disaster. There was a couple in, in the first inning for Manoa there. There was one where he was trotting off the mound in the first inning where it appeared as though he got the ball high in the zone. I can't remember who the batter was. It was, I think it was either Bogarts, might have been Machado. I just can't remember. Um, he had the ball up high in the zone and it got called for a ball. And it was a borderline pitch. It could have gone either way, but you'd think like 75, 80% of the time, that's going to be called for a strike. And Manoa was trotting off the mound, maybe because he was doing that, the umpire wanted to show him up. You know how it can be at times, but the worst part of this, the worst ump show was when Pete Walker came out to the mound, talked to Manoa. He had thrown a ton of pitches. Everyone knows the context here. 
This is a young pitcher who's just come up from a, you know, a difficult time in the minors. He's finding his groove again. Like things aren't going super well for this guy this year. And the umpire walks up with Pete Walker, listens to the whole conversation and then tosses Walker based on something he had said to Manoa. And then after the game, Manoa says, I, I mean, <laughs> what Pete Walker said wouldn't get you thrown out of a little league t-ball game because it wasn't that bad. It was something along the lines of, look, you have a, you have calls not going your way. He's not doing good calls behind the plate like don't let it get into your head that's the kind of thing that he was saying and he got tossed for that it was a very unnecessary umpire show nobody is paying money to watch that nobody's coming to the stadium to see that nobody no and there was some confusion around it too because people weren't sure if it was because of the fact that um like he was the the umpire was reminding them of how much time they're allowed to have on the um on the mound visit but like they weren't even close to encroaching upon that that time frame, as far as I was concerned. And then, yeah, it obviously boils back to the point. It must have been something that the ump heard Walker say, which like Manoa is going to say what he says. I don't think much like um, John Schneider has Manoa's back. I don't think Manoa's going to come out and say uh, Pete Walker was motherfucking the ump there on the mound. Like maybe he was, um, but I think he also has the wherewithal to know the ump is standing a few feet behind him. And maybe you want to get a little bit of a shot in, but either way, yeah, it, it was, it was a disaster pretty much start to finish in that first game. The, the Jays only put up the one run, um, which then was a very, a bit of a precursor, I guess, to what we saw in game two, where uh, third down of the show, the the bats just disappeared virtually entirely and, and really ruined what was another quality outing by Jose Barrios. Yeah, they only scored the one run in the first game. That was the first, in the first inning, they got a run off of Joe Musgrove. And after that, it was just nothing. It didn't really matter because Noah got lit up. The bullpen had to fill a bunch of innings. It was a lost game. Not the big, not the end of the world. But then in the second game, Jose Barrios came out and he was tossing. He looked really good. In the first few innings, he was just cruising through. And then also, same kind of thing with the umpire. There was a few calls that were borderline, some that were close, that kind of extended things for him. But even despite that, puts together another quality start goes six innings only allows two earned runs four hits navigates around four walks strikes out nine guys a little bit more of an eventful start than we usually see from Barrios like it's usually more contact on the ground or in the air getting outs in the field it's not that many strikeouts or that many walks so a bit of a different start from Barrios but his stuff looked fantastic there the unfortunate thing is is that you Darvish on the other side just completely carved up the Jays and they didn't even Darvish didn't even look like he had his best stuff and he's not having his best season but he goes six innings allows four hits and three walks no runs come in strikes out seven guys and then san diego's bullpen shuts the jays down over the next three innings the jays only had six hits in that entire game and all of them were singles there there really didn't feel like a point where they were really threatening at all and then they just lose the game two nothing and the bats were it the the, the two nothing lead felt like an eight nothing lead that that's kind of how it felt yeah, it was basically even when they were getting a little bit of contact and stuff, at no point did I feel the Jays were going to win that game. And it pretty much like to me, the game was out of reach in the thing. I believe it was the top of the fifth inning. They had a chance to kind of pick off the base runner um, who was going back to or kind of caught between bases, basically. And they had him dead to rights in the squeeze. And then Bichette just kind of misses his throw over to Chapman, throws it out wide. The the runner gets into third safely. At that point, to me, the game was over. Like, and so that was when they scored a couple more. The Padres scored a couple more runs. Um, you talk about only getting six hits in that series. And runs scored overall. They only scored five in the series. 
Three of those came at the tail end of game three, um, which we're going to talk about in our ops, basically off of the bat of one, one player who really stood out to us. Um, but yeah, 20, the first 24 innings of this series overall, only two runs scored by the Jays. Like that's just not good enough. If you're a team that wants to be a contender and I get it, there's 162 games in an MLB season. You're not going to be great every night. But when you have momentum coming off of like what you saw in the Diamondback series, you really would like to see your team carry that forward and use that as a little bit extra juice when your offense has been kind of stagnant and up and down throughout the whole season. Like when you get a good stretch, make it a good stretch of six, seven, eight games, not just three games, one and done. See you later. Yeah, that's kind of the the frustrating thing here is I'm not going to sit here and look at this series against San Diego and be like, oh, the Jays are bad because they lost two, lost two or three to a non-playoff team. Because circling back to the start, the Padres are a much better non-playoff team than most non-playoff teams. And like you said, they're going up against three very good starters here. So, you know, fair enough. But the the way the bats have looked, and this has been a thing all season, is it's hard to wrap your head around the Jays really going on a big hot streak and having, you know, we've seen Baltimore, Tampa, they've had these huge winning streaks where they go on a run where they win, you know, nine out of 10, 13 out of 15 games. And that's kind of what they need if they're going to get up there with the Orioles who are now in first place in the American League East. If they're going to catch up down the stretch, then that's what they need. And if, if the bats disappear like this, it's really hard to string those wins together. Like looking at this, this whole homestand from a big picture approach, going four and two against Arizona and, and San Diego is fine. If they just go four and two here, four and two there, and they just continue doing that the rest of the way, that's great. They're going to finish in the second or third wild card spot. Probably that's fine, but they're not going to win the division doing that. They're not going to find themselves in the mix in the American league in September, going into Baltimore, hosting the Orioles with a key series where they can catch them. The Orioles are going to run away or the Rays are going to run away. Somebody else is, they have to, the, the, the bats have to improve in order for the Jays to go on a, a big, long run. And what we saw in the San Diego series is I think what worries people as to whether the Jays are truly a contender who can beat the best of the best. And getting we, we've thrown this around a little bit in the past couple of weeks as the standings have all of a sudden really kind of went topsy turvy within the division. But the Jays being able to get to the top come playoff time and be a whole hold uh, home field advantage throughout the majority, if not the entirety of a playoff run in the American league. I think that makes a huge difference. Not, I mean, yes, the, the crowd in Toronto is terrific, but for a lot of these teams traveling to Toronto is a much bigger issue, obviously with it being an international thing. Um, even so much as the turf at Rogers center, like that's something the Jays are so much more accustomed to playing on every day than some of these teams coming in from elsewhere. So it's like you said, this, they look like a, four and two team, three and three team, four and two team, five and one team. If we're going in stretches of six games at a time, that's what they look like they are. And it unfortunately doesn't, we haven't seen anything to inspire us to think they can be anything more than that quite yet, but you know, hold, hold out hope here. And, and as the trade deadline approaches, maybe we will see some additions that can help boost them up into that, that next stratosphere. Just before we move on to our three ups, I wanted to make a couple notes about the, the Padres deadly lineup that we talked about. And, and most of their big names had, great series. Um, they said, you don't need to run down the, this murderer's row lineup that they have, but one name in particular I wanted to focus on was Juan Soto. So this is a guy who the Padres paid a King's ransom for to bring over, uh, from the nationals. He's making, I think it's $23 million this year. And he's a terrific ball player, but in all essence, because of the fact that he is so disciplined at the plate and walks so much, He's basically a money ball type player. 
is that worth $23 million in his current state of what he's doing this season? Because, yeah, he gets on base, but with a guy with his capabilities and his talent, you'd sure like to see him uh, swing the bat a little bit more and maybe provide a little bit more to your offense. And who knows, maybe that's really indicative of why the Padres have had the season they've had outside of a couple other big names, maybe not performing up to snuff. I wonder if that's part of it. Like just the fact that Machado and Bogarts behind him aren't there. They're not the hitters that they should be that he's just not even getting the pitches that he would be hitting. Like I'm looking at his stats now and he's walked 92 times, which leads major league baseball and he struck out 86 times. OPS is all the way up there at nine Oh five, uh, the 17 homers, 23 doubles. Like you'd usually see more power than that from Juan Soto. But I wonder if it is a symptom of the Padres. There's just, you, you know, this, like you're not going to give him something to hit because I think a, a, a lot of pitchers are probably more comfortable going up against a Bogarts or a Machado who just haven't looked that good this, this year. Like I, even, even in this series, watching Toronto's pitchers, not really Manoa, but the other ones, Barrios and Bassett, who we'll touch on right away. It really felt when, when I was watching the games, like don't even bother pitching to Juan Soto or even Fernando Tatis as well. It was those two guys. It felt like don't give them anything because everyone else feels like someone you can get out. And I think that's kind of the issue with the top heavy lineup. And this also, this, this kind of relates like it, it, it it sounds like we're talking about the Jays here. Like you can, you can wonder if that's kind of a struggle for a guy like Vladdy. Like, is there really somebody else behind him that pitchers are scared to pitch to? I don't really think there is. So maybe that's a product of it, but Juan Soto, certainly an interesting season. I, I can't really remember the last time I saw a guy with more, more walks and strikeouts than that, but an interesting season, weird, weird, weird team. The Padres are. Very, very weird team. And you talk about like they did intentionally walk Soto. At, I forgive me for not remembering where in the mix it came in game two or three where they, they walk him thinking, yeah, I'd rather face Machado up next. And then if I recall correctly, Machado did damage to it and, and made them pay the price on it. But all besides the point, we can we can roll right on into our three up, starting with Chris Bassett, who we touched on him briefly um, throughout the show already. But he had a great outing here to, to get the, a much needed win. Um, in game number three of this series. Yeah, this was, he had no room for error here pretty much because the Jays are going up against Blake Snell, former Cy Young winner, left-handed pitcher. We all know the struggles that the Jays have with lefties. None of their lefties can hit lefties, so none of those left-handed hitters are in the lineup. So you've got Santiago Espinal, Jordan Luplo, loaded lineup. And Blake Snell has put together one of the weirdest pitching lines you'll ever see. It's five innings pitched, five hits, seven walks, four strikeouts. And you're going to look at that and think, yeah, five or runs. Nope. One earned run. So he walks the tightrope for all five innings, grinds through it. And thankfully, Chris Bassett was up to the task. He goes six innings, allows just four hits, one walk, strikes out five, zero earned runs. And then after him, Tim Meza, Eric Swanson, Jordan Romano shut things down. The Jays finally got some insurance runs later in the game. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits a line drive home run that just scraped over the wall. And Alejandro Kirk hit a two-run bomb for his first home run since. It was that June 5th game, the one where Manoa only got one out against Houston all the way back then was the last time Alejandro Kirk had hit a home run. So thankfully he busted out of that slump. He he had a huge game. It was three for three with the dinger. I think he walked twice. 
easily his best game offensively of the season. And that's huge. The Jays so badly need some of these guys to contribute. Kirk, Varsho, Matt Chapman, the uh, not the Bowen Vladdies or even the George Springers, but the guys lower in the lineup. We talked about that. There's, there's, there's so few hitters down there in the second half of Toronto's lineup that, that are really scaring pitchers right now. And I know this is supposed to be the positive portion of the show, but I just got, you mentioned our show. He had another rough, rough yeah. series. Um, he did, however, have a base bunt hit in game one, which, uh, in that category, he leads the American League with eight. Fantastic. So there we go. That's why you bring a guy like that in play defense and bunch your way to first base. Love to love to see it. Huge. <laughs> and, uh, and Jordan Luplo, who was back up with the, um, the big club and started there in game three. Uh, to get another right-handed bat in the lineup there. And he has hit very well off of lefties, um, both, I believe, in the minors and his limited major league time. Don't quote me on those stats. Um, but even in at the start of that game, I was A, because of how games one and two went, and B, in I think it was the first or second inning, him and Kiermaier almost meet in a pretty high-speed collision out in right center field where, you know what, that's going to happen when you have new guys in the lineup and not quite as familiar with e- each other's calling off uh, uh, on fly balls, whatever the case. But as soon as that happened, I thought we were in for a repeat of game two saying, like, there's going to be a few costly errors, which we saw Espinal make one. He made another great play to make up for it later. Um, but, you know, all these things combined into, I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic than I think you and Tyler are sometimes when it comes to this team. And after that start of game three, I was like, oh boy, here we go again. But thankfully, Chris Bassett and Alejandro Kirk, who is our second up, uh, they kind of picked things up for us to go with the Vladdy home run to carry us to at least get one out of three in this series. So. Uh, finishing up in the three up category, Jordan Romano back for the first time. I, I hadn't even realized it because of how fast and furious that Diamondback series was and how, you know, in, it was all about the offense. Basically, we didn't even see him in those whole three games. Yeah, I think we kind of forgot to mention this in the last podcast was that as good as Toronto's bullpen was in that Arizona series, it's probably even more impressive. They pitched that well, given the fact Romano wasn't available the whole time. I saw a note right before the San Diego series started. Being, I think it was from TSN Scott Mitchell being like, yep, Jordan Romano is good to go. And I was like, wait a minute. I kind of forgot that he was still injured. <laughs> he hurt his back during the All-Star game. It wasn't available during the Arizona series. He never winds up going on the injured list. And then he comes in for the finale against the Padres, allows one single to center field. Then the next guy hits a double play to get out of it. So a nice, quick, easy three up, three down for Romano, which is great because uh, it was funny because um, uh, me and Tyler and BK were we're recording our all-star um, our mid-season look podcast during the all-star game while Romano was pitching and we had to pause and look at it and be like, "Uh Oh, Jordan Romano's injured. This might change their trade deadline plans, but thankfully everything is fine. That, is, that is a big win. Everything <laughs> does seem to be fine. Yeah. He looked back like his, his old self. So that all good news on that front. And, and this is something that I, I think we have talked about before and the Jays seem to have done a bunch is that, they did it against the Tigers. It's like when everything looks about as doom and gloom as possible, like on the brink of getting swept, it's rare the Jays will win game one of a series and then lose the next two. It's usually they'll look terrible in the first two and then manage to scrape out a really gritty uh, type of win in the third game to at least leave everything on a bit more of a positive note as you head into whatever you're up to next, whether it be a day off or in this case, heading out on the road. So that's all good. Quick honorable mention on the upside to manager John Schneider, who reaches 
100 wins in his career. And man, that is, uh, you made the note here. He ties Cito Gaston for the fastest in team history to reach that. That doesn't surprise me at all because uh, since he took over, the team has for the most part been good. Despite yeah, the, what we sometimes say on the pod here. <laughs> yeah. Tyler always points this out. This is kind of his thing. He's like, we only ever want to mention John Schneider when he's bad, when he doesn't use the reliever that we want and it blows up in his face, but no one ever points it out when things go well. Like the Arizona series was a perfect example of that. You know, no Jordan Romano, still fantastic bullpen management. They win all three games. And now here we are. He's, he's been a manager for 171 games. Um, Charlie Montoya was fired last year when the Jays were in Seattle. That was a little over a year ago now. I think it came in like mid July. I can't really remember. Uh, but since then, Schneider's gone 171, 100 wins and 71 losses, not 171. Um, and oh, exactly. He's got 171 and oh, they haven't lost a single <laughs> game. They won the World Series last year. They won that great playoff series against Seattle, of course. Um, but yeah, I can't, can't complain about John Schneider. It's, it's, it's just easy to shit on a manager. It just, you can, f- fans like to tell themselves that, you know, if, if the manager just picked the lineup that I thought was right, or if they just used the reliever that I wanted, everything would work out, but it's really not how it works out. The manager doesn't have a tremendous amount of control over the outcomes. I think John Schneider is a good manager for this group. He kind of, he, ha- he has that intensity kind of that John Gibbons hockey coach manager style energy. It really works in this market. Canadian fans like that kind of manager. So I think he's a great fit on the team. I, I don't love every single thing he does. Maybe every once in a while I'll be critical, but I'm, I'm, I think Schneider's done a good job. I think the Jays are in, in good hands with their manager. Uh, oh, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I think the addition of Don Mattingly this year has only um, even taken that to another level with a little bit more of a veteran, veteran presence in the dugout with him there. And, um, you know, his experience, uh, having both, both as a player and as a manager in the past. So I think that has helped John Schneider reach even better heights and hopefully the best still yet to come for him and this Jays team. But, uh, lots more stuff to discuss, including some, some more trade talk, uh, some stuff about the Mariners as we head out to Seattle for this three game set over the weekend. And of course, the AL East report. But first, we'll step aside for a quick break. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, Coomzy, three games coming up in Seattle. We'll get to that tee up in a moment. But uh, first, let's banty around a little bit more trade talk, starting with the kind of one name that seems to be on everybody's radar. And it has been expedited and, and large because of the fact the Angels have stunk out loud for the past better part of a month. Um, Shohei Otani, the Angels like coming out and saying that they still haven't decided if they're going to try and move him or not. Yeah, the Angels are in a weird spot. They they just pulled off a sweep over the New York Yankees that kind of brought them up a little bit in the wild card race. They're 49 and 48. They would still have to leapfrog New York and Boston and then jump over one of Toronto or Houston to get into a playoff spot. That's not easy to do. I mean, they're also dealing with an injury to Mike Trout. We don't really know when he's going to get back or if when he gets back, how good he's going to look because his injury is so weird. He broke like the, the hand, the the higher up in the hand doesn't usually happen in baseball so no idea what to expect there um the interesting thing here is that the angels are coming to toronto right before the trade deadline so that's going to be anaheim's final series before they have to make a decision here so if the jays beat the wheels off of the angels in that three game set in toronto they're probably pushing the angels into trading otani and the the because, I mean, like, I, I don't think the trade would come sooner than that. Looking at Anaheim's schedule, they head out. Um, oh, no, they're hosting the Pirates this weekend. So a pretty bad team they should beat. And then they're going to Detroit after that, which is next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So it's kind of a nice opportunity for them to go to go like four and two or five and one, roll into that Jays series with some positive vibes and then maybe not opt to trade Otani. But who knows, man, this is the Angels. Like you, you, the, it would be so Angels to pull off a sweep of the Yankees at home where everyone's excited and then get swept at home by the Pirates immediately after like that that would be the most los angeles angels of anaheim thing imaginable so uh from from our perspective i think it would be fun to watch shoey otani play in that series against toronto but i think we'd probably rather them go oh and six and then be like all right we're gonna trade this guy before the toronto series (laughs) so the Jays don't have to face him they get to face like a shitty version of the angels instead so bit of a bit of an interesting situation all told yeah, and if the Angels are, like I said, they kind of go on a, another skid here leading into that. Even if they don't trade him yet, maybe they, they take the route of sitting him, you know, asset pro- protection type thing. And either way, it all leads back to the point. Yes, watching him, no matter the, the circumstance, is just, it is must-watch baseball, basically. But in the case of, like, for the sake of the Jays, like, yeah, I think that it would be would be a much easier series to match up against when you don't have the best player in baseball on the other side of the, the diamond. So um, I wanted to get your, your opinion on this, too. I had some notes about this in my AL East report, but we can talk about it now. Realistically, if Otani were to get moved, we, we know that he's a free agent at the end of this year. And once he does hit the market, it's going to be one of, you know, a select few teams that are going to be able to literally afford this contract that he's, that he's worked himself into here. Uh, your big market teams, Yankees, Dodgers, and you throw a couple others on that list for the sake of discussion. But in terms of the trade itself, it almost does, unless it is one of those teams that ends up making the acquisition, it looks like it's probably going to be a pure rental for them down the, down the stretch here. And the list of teams that actually own the assets to acquire him 
is pretty few and far between, even if it is just for, for a rental. And on that list, realistically, are the Orioles and the Tampa Bay Rays. So if you consider that, either those two teams or somebody else around the major leagues, like who do you actually see as a, a good fit for Otani? I've always thought that in free agency, he would wind up with the Dodgers. It's, it's just an easy shift where you can kind of remain essentially in the exact same situation, but play for an actual major league baseball team in LA. <laughs> like no offense to the angels, but I mean, let's be real. We have to look at their results and they, they just haven't been there. There's, there's no, there really isn't a positive outlook. Like though they had a, they've had a decent season this year. I don't think you can negotiate with Shoei Otani and be like, look, man, like 2023 makes it clear that we're moving in the right direction. Now, uh, no, it doesn't. Like this hasn't been good at all. The Dodgers make sense. They have a ton of money. It 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 almost it honestly seems like they've kind of been gearing up for this. Like they handed out big contracts to Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman, but you know they didn't re-sign Corey Seager. They didn't re-sign Cody Bellinger, and I guess part of that has to do with performance. But they didn't lock up their young guys to forever contracts because it always seemed like they were trying to keep money open for something else, and that something else you'd think would be Shohei Otani. The, uh, the the general sentiment has been that he wants to remain on the West coast, which of course would make sense because he's from Japan. That's a much easier flight to go home than going from, you know, flying from New York to LAX to Japan. But then again, you also have a private jet. So who gives a shit? When you're about to be a half a billionaire, <laughs> then I, yeah, I doubt that's really in his highest yeah, yeah. of concerns, but, but you're right. He did say West coast would certainly be his priority. So, yeah. So th- that would be my guess. But when it comes to acquiring, Hiring him in a trade, man, it could come anywhere. You never really know. Like, I remember years ago, um, Cleveland was trading away CC Sabathia when he was at his best, and it was Milwaukee who came through to make the trade, knowing full well they weren't going to re sign CC Sabathia. And he went and signed his long term deal with the Yankees and even the Jays when they got David Price. Like, I don't know. I don't think there was really much thought at all that the Jays were going to re sign him, but they still went ahead and made the deal and it worked. And he did his thing and helped the Jays win the division, get into the playoffs. So I don't know. Maybe it is Tampa. Maybe it is Baltimore. It would make sense. Baltimore's got so many prospects and you already have so many, so many good players on your team now. Not every single one of those prospects is going to work out. So hang on to your one or two guys you really like and go make a move for Shoei Otani because I think one thing we learned with the Jays in this rebuild is the 2021 Jays might have been the best version of this team we'll ever see. And I, I'm not going to make statements on how things may or may not go for Baltimore because they have tons of good prospects down there, but things don't always work out as planned. And maybe the 2023 Orioles are the best shot they have. The team looks really good. So I don't know. Why not lean in? Even if there's no prayer of re-signing them, you're going to get like the coolest stretch run of all time. And it might lead you to a World Series. Yeah, we, we talked about this really briefly last episode too. And I said, when, when you have the chance, if you catch lightning in a bottle, like don't open the cap and let it go, like shake it and make something happen. And that's what the, I think the opportunity the Orioles have here and maybe the Rays to a bit of a lesser extent because we, we have seen them kind of have a much, um, much, much, uh, maligned regression here since their hot start. But yeah, if I were the Orioles, I would be putting all my eggs in that basket on personally. But once again, like we talked about with, uh, with when we look at our, our team's managers and stuff saying I would have made a different decision here. <laughs> well, there's a reason though they're in those positions and doing that job. And we're here talking about it on the podcast. So I won't, I won't speak too much into it, but I think we can jump right into our AL East report this week. Um, Cam for the second time all year, 
on Tuesday, all five AL East teams lost on the same day. Really? Oh yeah, when the when the Jays kicked off their series, that's right. Every single that's, one of them lost. That is rare. It, you it's don't second second time all year. Second time all year. And it's it's even more rare because of how good this division has been. But for the first time since basically the start of the season, we have a new team in first place, and that is the aforementioned Baltimore Orioles, who despite losing two of three to the Dodgers, uh, they still uh, are in first place as we record here on Friday morning because uh, they've actually started their series with the Rays last night, and they took first game in that that first game, excuse me, um, to even kind of get a little bit more separation there, but the, the loss in the opening game to the Dodgers did end the Orioles' eight-game win streak, but I don't think they're too, too concerned about that at the moment. This set against Tampa Bay in the remaining three games are massive. This all of a sudden can create such division in the opposite direction of where the Rays probably thought they were going to be a month or two ago, where now all of a sudden they're three or four games back of of the Orioles instead of that four to five game cushion that they have for themselves. Uh, The Orioles did make a trade. They acquired a relief pitcher, Shintaro Fujinami, from the Oakland Athletics, who he has done some some starting, and but he's going to be in the Orioles bullpen. The, the numbers certainly don't pop out. Actually, eight point seven, eight point five seven, pardon me, ERA and a one point seven strikeout to walk ratio. But um, there, if you dive into a little bit more, as of late, he has been substantially better. So just another arm for the Orioles to add to it, and um, it obviously didn't cost them a ton to to bring in a guy like that. On the other side, the Rays, they were swept once again by the Rangers. They, since their start of 13 and 0, 47 and 40 has been their record. And that hasn't, like, I feel like I brought this up a couple different times about they've, they've never, until recently, they'd never lost more than I think two or three games in a row basically all year. But now this last two or three weeks has sent them spiraling uh they apart from coming out of the break and getting some games off the terrible royals like they they just can't seem to get things figured out um and losing game one to baltimore thursday night only is a further testament to that so they kind of need to get their their stuff figured out here sooner rather than later all of a sudden they're going to be back bustling around with the jays red Sox, and yankees in the back half of the series and the orioles might be coasting their way to to a division win so the red Sox they actually also lost two of three out in oakland um and although that is bad news they do have some more good news as chris sale is looking to throw another bullpen session this weekend current timeline on return is looking like early august but you never know sometimes a little setback here or there whatever the case can can push that a little bit um and him returning would give a huge boost obviously to the red Sox playoff chances and uh back Backup catcher, former Jays legend for the wrong reasons, Reese McGuire, um, close to starting his rehab assignment for the Red Sox as well. Uh, next up for the Bo Sox will be back at Fenway Park for three games interleague play versus the New York Mets. Finally, the New York Yankees, like you said, they were swept by the Angels. Um, Otani hit a huge home run. I think it was in game one and then did a nice little bat flip on it as well, just to drive home his point. That was nice to see because he's not a guy that shows a ton of emotion. And so when you get a little bit out of that, it just kind of fires you up even more. Uh, the Yankees, they are in the worst kind of ways lately. Two and nine in their last 11, their offense looks lost, like without Judge. And it's been this way since Judge basically left the lineup, but it's all coming to a, a breaking point here. Carlos Rodon making what I believe was a second start in the pinstripe since uh, finishing that injury or time on the injured list. He got booed off the field. And um, this was in 
Anaheim, if I'm not mistaken, but you know, probably tons of Yankees fans there nonetheless, booed off the field. Uh, and then he did the favor of blowing them a kiss as he <laughs> headed off, getting, getting booed off the field. So things are not looking super great in Yankee land. Uh, Jake Bowers is beginning his reha- rehab assignment. Um, w- uh, Willie Calhoun, who's one of their DHs, uh, doing the same. And Josh Donaldson has been moved to the 60 day IL, which maybe this is a, a matter of, like, at, the, at this point, the Yankees can't really afford to have anybody not in the lineup in terms of a veteran bat, even though Donaldson has been bad this year. So I don't think this is a case of a uh, Adam Simber 60 day diet. 60 day IL situation. This is legitimate, which is even more concerning because if you think about 60 days from now, the season's over, right? Yeah. So the Yankees, um, they're kind of running out of options here. If judge can't, can't get back quickly and they keep sliding down the, the standings at the same time. So thankfully they have a good opportunity to get things right. It is they're back at home at Yankee stadium for three games versus the Kansas city Royals. I will once again throw up our standings for us really quick just to take a look at how things have changed. And uh, yeah, like I said, the the Rays only five games up on Toronto right now, which seems like it was a pipe dream not so long ago. And Baltimore comfortably uh, up at the top. They're technically only a game ahead, but they are technically like their percentage wise is, is substantially or noticeably better than where the Rays are at. They have less games played. So when you look at all this and everything just went over, Coomsey. Where do you see the division shaking out here as we enter the final two months of the, the regular season? I've got a great note here on July. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move forward one day so that it fits my narrative. On okay. Wednesday, July 22nd of uh, 2015, the Jays were five and a half games back of the division. And then, of course, they went and won the division. The Jays now on July the 21st, 2023, five and a half games back. Trade deadline. Yeah. History could repeat itself. I would love to see it. This need a little, little bit of a heater here and the Orioles to cool off would go a long way. That would help a lot. Well. That's, that's kind of the more worrying thing is I, I feel like the Jays can have a nice finish to the season. They can play 600 or 580 ball the rest of the way and get up to 91, 92, 93 wins. But I do worry, especially if the Orioles go ahead and pull the trigger on that Otani trade, like we told them to, that they're <laughs> going to go and win like 105 games or something like that. And they're just going to be out of reach, unfortunately. But Ah, Jays could find themselves in the number one wild card spot. Who knows? Yeah, and when you look at the separation that's create has has become uh, or has been created between the Jays and the Red Sox, and then in turn the Yankees, who are now a full game back of the Red Sox, like that. If you'd said that even a month ago, that would because that was at the point the Jays were trying to get. They were like neck and neck with the Red Sox at the bottom of the division, where you're kind of thinking like, "Holy crap, how can we be in fifth place?" and be leading the AL Central, but uh, <laughs> they they've done they've done well with the opportunity given to them with the kind of bit of a break in the schedule. But the home stretch for the Jays is going to be tough because they play so many games uh, in division uh, in the last month of the season. I think it is, That's and uh, we all we all know how their how their record in division has been this year. So that that is a little bit cause for concern. But who knows? Maybe they can kind of right the ship. And get over what I think at this point is a pretty big mental hurdle in terms of their their in-division opponents as well. So that can wrap up our AL East report here in episode 163. Heading into a West Coast road trip, starting with the Seattle Mariners. And before we get into the games itself, there was some headlines made between uh, the Mariners and their fans at the team store. Putting out Blue Jays merchandise because they know that 
They come in the literal tens of thousands to these games and one little stand afforded to Blue Jays merchants. I mean, that thing would be cleaned out before the first yeah. pitch of game one. But even with that in mind, it made quite the uproar uh, online and they were it was removed shortly thereafter. Yeah, a picture. There's an account on Twitter called Mariner's Muse took a, a picture of the store and it, it was a big display with uh, Jay's T-shirts, jerseys, jerseys, probably hats and posted it onto Twitter. And it the Mariner's fans were not happy about it which understandably and other fans were dunking on them, of course. And then it even extended so far that two players on the team commented on it. The pitcher, Paul Seawolf quote tweeted it saying, what the hell is this at Mariners with an angry face? Uh, JP Crawford, the infielder did the face palm emoji with uh, SMH. So the, and then the same account, um, somebody else noted, I think it was a Seattle radio guy who pointed out the next day. Okay. This has all been changed. Um, after the backlash, they, threw all the Jays stuff into a box. Lord knows what they did with it. And then just replaced it with random Mariners gear. Jays fans can make fun of this all they want, but it really wasn't that long ago that, that, that Toronto had similar things going on. Um, people pointed out on Twitter, I think it was Andrew Stoughton who noted it, that um, they used to sell Yankees and Red Sox hats when when those two teams came to Toronto because of the influx of those fans. And of course, everybody remembers uh, Paul Beeston was the one who argued in favor of the Jays being in the AL East so they could have those games against New York and Boston where those fans came in. Otherwise, the Jays might be in the AL Central. Who knows? There's also <laughs> stories about how uh, the Jays would prioritize selling tickets in Toronto to Red Sox and Yankees season ticket holders. They would give them the option to buy tickets before they were even on sale to Jays fans. So this is a thing that happens. It's a thing that really rubs fans the wrong way. Mariners fans are already annoyed that one of their home series turns into essentially an away series. They have to listen to Canadian fans boo their players and cheer for their own guys and sing Oh Canada really loudly. But I mean, I, I get it. Like, the, the Blue Jays used to be a doormat for other American League East teams. It sucks watching Yankees fans fill up the Sky Dome. It sucked watching Red Sox doing it. I, I empathize with Mariners fans. I can understand why they'd be bothered by this. And it doesn't help that Seattle's season has been a major disappointment, yeah. obviously. And that only is just kind of like uh, insult to injury, obviously, that this next this next stage happens. But none of that will likely have any impact on the series itself, which does get going here on Friday night. Late game, of course, with the uh, the West Coast for our, our East Coast listeners, a nice ten o'clock Eastern oh, yeah. time time start. Which, God, I feel bad for them. That that's something I have always appreci- always appreciated about us living here in Alberta on the Mountain Standard Time or, or uh, Daylight Time, depending on the time of year. Um, is that no matter what, we can watch sports pretty much. Like e- the East Coast start times, if it's five o'clock, maybe if you like work a typical nine to five job, you're you're not quite getting home for the very start of these games. Will be baseball, hockey, basketball, whatever you name it. But then these West Coast games, and especially something that I'm a big fan of, like college football, these games that start so late at night, you're you're not writing off your next day because you're staying up to watch them, which for, for people back in Toronto, this is, you're gonna be up till one o'clock in the morning watching these baseball games. Thankfully it's only the one on Friday night, the other two are daytimes. I'm sure there's some consideration that goes into that, but um, long digression or long tangent away around Friday, we will see UC Kikuchi back on the bump. And then thankfully all of us, big side relief, Kevin Gosman was announced. He will make his return to the starting lineup uh, on Saturday. And then we'll see Alec Manoa, give it another go. On Sunday, the the Mariners 
currently five and a half games back of a wild card spot. They're five and five in their last 10. They're not out of the playoff race, but I certainly don't think that their chances are very good. I'm sure within that club post, they still have some belief. So uh, this isn't going to be a rollover type team that the Jays are going up against out on the West Coast. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. This is a, I I mentioned this for Anaheim when they come to Toronto, it's, it's going to be, it'll be a big series against the Jays to decide what they do with Otani, but for Seattle as well, this, this will play a significant role in dictating whether they're still kind of in the mix for the playoffs or not. If the Jays go into Seattle and sweep the Mariners, the Jays are already five and a half up on Seattle. If they, they sweep them, it's eight and a half. So it's pretty hard to imagine the Mariners coming back from that. But if the Mariners sweep the Jays, then, you know, they, they shrink that lead to two, two and a half games. And that's very doable. So this series has pretty significant implications. Remember last year, the Jays went into Seattle, got swept in the four game set and fired their manager. Um, the Jays, and then of course in the playoff series, Seattle rolled into Toronto and pulled off the sweep with the crazy come from behind win in game two. Um, this is a great opportunity for the Jays to kind of get revenge on the Mariners for that pumping them, embarrassing them at home and they're in their playoff series. I don't mean embarrassing them like the Mariners were showing them up or they were being unreasonable. It's just this the loss was embarrassing as a Jays fan. We, we can all say that it was. Um, so this is an opportunity for the Jays to kind of bury the team that killed them last fall. The, um, We'll see what happens. It's it's great that Kevin Gosman's back on the mound. That's huge. They put him in between the two spots where you're probably most likely not to get length. Yusei Kikuchi hasn't usually given them more than five innings, and no one knows what to expect from Alec Manoa at this point. That's another interesting storyline to watch. Uh, he has one more start lined up before the trade deadline. Dinjin Ryu is on his way back. He's probably going to do one more start in AAA Buffalo before the Jays would re-add him to the active roster and the 40-man coming back from the 60-day injured list. And I mean, if Manoa struggles in this start against Seattle, then I think it really raises raises the concern about how badly they need to add a pitcher ahead of the trade deadline. I don't think one good start from Manoa here, like a solid start, like a quality start, a six innings, two earned runs would change the fact that getting some depth might be good. But if he goes and gets shelled again, doesn't strike anybody out, walks six guys, then it's it's pretty much a need. You have to go out and get a starter. You It's, it's a need. You can't, as good as Hyunjin Ryu has been in his rehab starts and as exciting as that story is, you'd be insane to bank on a 36-year-old coming off of Tommy John surgery to factor into your starting rotation significantly. Like it's a nice option. That might work out, but banking on that just wouldn't be wise. So I would imagine based on how this Manoa start goes could dictate Toronto's deadline plans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's what's the expression? One in the hand is worth more than two in the bush or something like that, which is kind of where the Jays are at with their their start, their back end of their rotation. Like, yeah, Ryu and Manoa might be good, but I think you'd feel more comfortable getting a legitimate someone you can count on to fill that fifth spot in the rotation. But I think that Manoa start, like you said, will be very, very indicative of the route the Jays decide to take. Of course, uh, Teoscar Hernandez playing against the Jays his first time experiencing the flip side of this this rivalry and home home away game for the Mariners um it'll be interesting to see how he performs and we you you love to bring these this these points up all the time that usually XJs love to torch their former teams we saw with Lourdes Gurriel Moreno hit a home run as well in the D-back series um we've seen it down down the line over and over again so I wouldn't be surprised to see Teoscar Hernandez have himself a great series and uh as you mentioned last show our host Tyler Uremchuk going to be in in Seattle correct for these games that's right 
keep uh, so everyone listening, keep your eyes open for Tyler uh, waving on the screen, throwing back hot dogs and probably a few nice cold beverages as well, enjoying his time off. So, all right, Coomzy, we will talk with you after the weekend. Enjoy the weekend set out on the West Coast. Best wishes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 